Welcome to the Covenant Experience Podcast. At Covenant, we are growing passionate followers of Jesus Christ who serve all people. If you live in the tri-state area, we welcome you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. or 11 a.m. You can find more information about us online at covenantexperience.com or call us at 304-876-2212 with any questions. And now, today's message. If you have a copy of the scriptures, if you would join me in Matthew chapter 7, this is the passage that Pastor Jeff read at the outset of our time together. We've been in a series for the last three weeks called Who's Your One? We've been challenging each other to pray over the souls of people who might be far from God, to share that message of Jesus. We've been training, not just here from the stage, but in your small groups. What does it look like to share succinctly and compellingly the greatest story that's ever been told? To tell people that although their sins have separated them from God, that there is good news directly from that same God embodied in the person and the work of Jesus Christ and offering them eternal life. And so we're going to do this for the next several weeks leading right up to Christmas. But today, I want to hit the pause button for just a bit to ask this question. We've been asking who's your one. Everybody's got a loved one. Everybody's got a coworker. Everybody's got a family member, somebody that they know who's far from God, someone who has yet to know Christ. And, and we've been praying over that individual. But I want to take a pause for just a minute and ask this question. It, could it be that you're the one you're looking for? Could it be that that one this holiday season might be some of the people in front of me right now. Brad and, and Sophie Camp are a couple that if you knew them, you would think, man, they, they are just the ideal Christian family. And if you don't believe me, you just got to look at their shared Instagram page. Beautiful family, husband and wife in their mid-30s, two little girls, uh, just they're all matching. In fact, the last uh, picture that they had taken was right in front of an older church building with those big white columns in the front brick uh, facing on the, on the front of the building, and there they are sitting on the steps. That picture on Instagram got well over 100 likes. There's 50 or 60 comments telling them how beautiful they look and how how blessed they are uh, to be a family. And this really warms Sophie's heart because the day before that picture was taken, she'd actually gone shopping, spent several hours looking for the dresses for those two little girls so they'd actually match. This is the camp family. In their mid-30s, kind of typical of most kind of suburban, conservative, good, just salt-of-the-earth kind of people. They're having the same kind of arguments that I imagine some of the people in front of me are having like right now. Sophie actually just agreed, although she said for years she would never do it because she didn't want to be one of those moms, but she's finally made the switch from the SUV to the minivan because it's just easier. And, and so every night that they can have dinner together, life, as you can imagine, like probably some of your lives for the camps, it's incredibly hectic and chaotic, but they, they try to have a dinner together at least every single night. And of course, they always say the blessing and, and they usually take turns. And especially, it, it's especially precious when their four-year-old girl does it because she will bow her head and put her hands together like this and she'll recite that prayer that so many of you probably already know. God is great. God is good. Let us thank him for our food. She learned that prayer at the faith-based preschool that Sophie sends her to two days a week while she's in yoga classes. And so this is the camp family, just this wonderful, wonderful place. They, they go to church about every four, sometimes every six weeks. Um, life's just busy, you know. It, it's, hard to, it's hard to keep up with that kind of schedule. But when they do, they feel better about themselves. 
And every time they think of church, even when they're not there, they, they tend to think good thoughts. Like, this is a, a really good place to go. Our, our, our little girls, they get some good moral foundation. We even get a, a really good moral lesson. And so when they finally do make it, about every four to six weeks, they feel better about themselves. And it's also an added bonus that Sophie's mother goes to this church as well. And she's put, we'll say, some expectations on Sophie. Nana is what the little girls call her. And Nana wants to see those grandbabies in church every single Sunday. And it's a little embarrassing for her to have to tell her Sunday school class that her daughter doesn't bring those little girls to church. And so to overcome that guilt and maybe even help her mother a little bit, Sophie makes sure that, again, about at least every six weeks, they get these girls into church. And then, of course, afterward, they go to Nana and Papa's, and they have a wonderful meal together. And, and, and you know, even Brad and Sophie have found that they actually fight less with each other if they'll just give this occasional four-hour sacrifice to Nana and Papa. Now, now what I've described for you, it just really briefly, is one of a of a thousand scenarios that could fall under the category of something called cultural Christianity. Cultural Christianity is a very popular religion. It permeates the West, and particularly the United States and America. You, you can find members of this sect among Catholic, Protestant, and Orthodox traditions, among all Christian denominations. You can find it in the South. You can find it in the Midwest. You can find loads of it right here in the tri-state area. You can find it at one of the more notable places I remember experiencing and encountering it was on high school football fields in my native South, where they still pray in public over the loudspeaker just before the singing of both the alma mater and the national anthem. You can encounter this civil religion at patriotic events you encounter it around family dinner tables. And the folks that practice this religion, man, these are good people. I mean, these are the kind of people I want as my neighbor. They're salt-of-the-earth folks. They're not atheist or agnostic. They're not some urban intellectuals trying to make up any argument they can to try to disprove the Christian faith. In fact, just the opposite. They have a very strong belief in God and a very sincere commitment both to their beliefs and to their practices. I mean, they take these traditions seriously. Everything from prayer in school to nativity scenes to Linus reciting the Christmas story in a Charlie Brown's Christmas. Now, here's the only thing about that. Everything these people believe and everything they practice and everything that is true about their lives would still be true and they would still believe it and they would still do it even if Jesus had never been raised from the dead. That's called cultural Christianity. You say, Pastor, what's wrong with believing in God? Well, nothing. I do. What's wrong with a Charlie Brown's Christmas? Not a thing. In fact, I, can I just admit, this 47-year-old guy gets choked up watching Linus. Ken wants to do this every year. And at all three of our Christmas Eve services, we'll play that Linus clip, and I'll either be backstage or I'll be sitting at the back because I don't want, want y'all to see your pastor crying because I get choked up just like you. Is there anything wrong with any of that? Nope. Provided it doesn't stop there. That's the difficulty. The cultural Christianity, you can identify it in this way. It admires Jesus, but it doesn't really find him necessary to the operation of daily life unless something happens in your life that's so traumatic that you need him to, as in the words of that great theologian, Carrie Underwood, take the wheel. 
and then you let him do what he what you want him to do, and then you back away, and you forget about him as long as you're not in a moment of crisis. And the near omnipresence of cultural Christianity should scare us when we read the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 7. In fact, I'm going to back up a little bit. We're going to start with some fairly shocking words in verses 13 and 14. Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow, and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. I just want to remind you, even in the first century, as Jesus stands on that mountainside, he's not preaching to pagans who don't believe in God. He's not preaching to polytheists. When he speaks, his the audience that he's addressing are not the Hindus and the Buddhists that even hundreds of years before his coming onto the scene have been emerging on the Asian continent. His audience consists of no Zoroastrians or astrologers that have been around for at least two to three hundred years in what will we will now today know as the Middle East. He's not talking to any of those people. His audience consists solely and completely of monotheists who believe in one God, who believe the scriptures are the word of God, who are good, moral, salt of the earth people. And he looks at them and he says, most of you are not going to make it. That should shock us. That should shock us. He'll then spend the next six verses explaining why that is. Why is it that their faith is not enough? And he'll say that evidence of genuine faith is not their declaration or the, the window dressing, if you will, of their own faith. The, the real acid test of faith is a different kind of life. Salvation is by faith, not by works. But genuine faith, empowered by the grace of God, never leaves someone unchanged. He says, if you really belong to me, this is the way you're going to behave. And if you don't behave this way, then this is evidence that whatever you have is not the real thing, regardless of how boldly you may declare that you know Christ. And to punctuate that point further, Jesus makes a more shocking statement in the text that Pastor Jeff read at the outset of our time together. And so here's the, the question everybody in front of me has to consider this morning as we look at the words of Jesus. Is he talking about me? I love you guys. Love being your pastor. I, I'm looking around and I, I mean, I, I don't see a soul that I don't love, that I wouldn't love to have for a neighbor. But that's the question we need to ask. Because being a good neighbor doesn't get you into heaven. Being nice to other people, being a good moral person, believing the right things in and of themselves, those things don't make you right with God. Let me beg you this morning to look at the words of Jesus and simply ask, is he talking about me? Let's begin with the shock. He says in verse 21, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Several years ago, there was a, uh, an evangelist, his name was Paul Washer, and he was one in a lineup of, of speakers at this large event, uh, something like creation. We're familiar with that one here because our youth go there occasionally. This was a big event similar to that one. 
uh, and it was held down in Alabama, and he got up and he started challenging those teens not to live a double life, to genuinely be different, to give their whole lives to Jesus, to hate sin the way God hates it, to love Jesus in, in exactly the way that they are called to love Jesus with their whole lives, and not to fake it till you make it, but to genuinely have faith in Christ, and to be bold witnesses, and to be used by Christ. And when he got to that big crescendo with, with the exclamation point at the end, it was met by thunderous applause of thousands of teen boys and girls. And then when the applause subsided, he very boldly looked at them and said, I don't know why you're clapping. I'm talking about you. You see, sometimes, and I've experienced that as a, as a pastor, as a preacher, a communicator of God's Word, is, 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 it's amazing how often what is said falls on deaf ears because the audience thinks that you must be talking about somebody else. And when I have that experience, I take comfort in the fact that Jesus also experienced that. Jesus said, enter by the narrow way. The gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And you can imagine these people, just given the way in which Jesus has to continually extrapolate on this principle, these people saying, oh, yeah, that's right. It's a, it's a hard, narrow way. There's not going to be, there's going to be a lot more people not take that route than take it. Aren't you glad that all the people here, all the thousands of us are on that road? And so Jesus has to go further. In verses 15 to 20, he says we need to examine the fruit of a person's life. Apparently, thousands of people thought, yeah, all those other people out there in the world need to examine themselves. This, this attitude, it reminds me of when I was a younger pastor and I was in, this, I was in a, a much smaller congregation and so by virtue of that, and my job duties were different. I, I actually had the schedule to do this. I enjoyed doing this. I did some hospital visits, most of them. And I, I was in the, the prep room on a number of occasions. When the anesthesiologist is in there, they're getting ready to kind of put you under, and they're, they're getting ready to take you in, and I'm there holding a hand, and I'm trying to reassure, and I'm trying to redirect people's faith in God just before they go under. I can't remember a single time that I ever did that that the person undergoing surgery didn't look up at me with a smile and say, Pastor, I'm not worried. I have the best surgeon in the country. Now, it is not good pastoral bedside manner to respond to that the way I'm thinking to respond to that. So I usually just bite my lip and smile and nod my head and walk away. But let me tell you what's going on inside my head. When I hear them, they tell me I got the best surgeon. They can't all be the best surgeon in the country. I've heard that at multiple hospitals in multiple states. They all can't be the best. That's like saying, you know, you're special more than anybody else. Like, no, there's, there's a level at which that's just not true anymore. You can't be. Somewhere on this continent are those guys who graduated by the academic skin of their teeth. Where's the, the, the C minus average med students? You know they're somewhere. I hope nobody's having surgery in here anytime soon. But you know they got to be somewhere, right? Because not everybody's the best. This is the, the truth that Jesus has to drive home. Verse 21 is a reality check. We're all on the narrow way. This is Jesus' way of saying, no, that can't be true. 
<laughs> no, no. If, if only a few are going, then what you're assuming can't be true. And so he finally says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, you, you call me what you want, you confess what you want, theologically, you could cross every T, you can dot every I, you can know the Bible from Genesis to the maps and not know me. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Just because you're standing in this crowd and using the right language and believing the right things does not mean that you belong to me. Some of you don't belong to me. In fact, most of you don't belong to me. And how does he know this? Well, he goes on. He who does the will of my Father, who is in heaven. There's some tangible evidence. If you really know me, there's a, there's a deep down profound impact. Let me tell you what scares me as a preacher who for almost 28 years now has done most of my ministry in the United States of America. Because the problem largely that I'm talking about, other nations, other continents, they have their issues too. Okay? Sometimes I get this overly romantic, well, the church in Africa is just perfect. <laughs> no, it's not. Okay. All right, they got their issues too. But here, when it comes to the West, here, here's our issue. It is we will take the words of Jesus. I don't know if we knowingly do it or maybe we're just, I don't know. I don't know. But we take what Jesus says here and we exactly reverse it. You know how we do that? By doing everything we can, struggling in every way we can to identify as many people as possible as Christian. And getting highly offended that it might be suggested that one of those people is not. How do we do that? Well, did you, did you ask Jesus to come into your heart? Did you pray a prayer? Now listen, that's important. If you're in our small groups, you've already, you've already kind of gone through your reps and you've been trained to ask that question. You've been trained to ask people after moving through the, the three circles and presenting the gospel to an individual to invite them to, pr to pray to receive Christ as Lord and Savior. We believe in that here at Covenant. Romans 10 says that whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. You can't, I can't conceive of how you would call on the name of the Lord if you didn't pray. But here's the other side of that coin. A verbally expressed prayer in and of itself accomplishes precisely nothing. Nothing. Anybody know what the Shahada is? Our Muslim friends that have been so gracious to help us here with the, the opioid crisis, that, that's their confession of faith. There is one God and Muhammad is his prophet. If you just say those words and you sincerely mean them, then you become a Muslim. And, and what we've done to a large extent in the Christian West, is we've taken genuine conversion to Christ and we've reduced it to the level of a Christian version of the Shahada. Just say a few words and everything will be okay. But the foundation of your faith is not something you say. It's not something you do. It is something that Jesus has already done on your behalf and if it really is applied to you and me, it changes us forever. If you haven't been changed, your prayer doesn't mean anything to God. And my great fear, my great fear is that there will be a large number of people that I have preached to in multiple churches all over the world and even hundreds of people that I preach to here every single weekend 
By human standards, you're good people. You're salt of the earth people. 50,000 years from this moment, you're going to be in hell because you spiritually sleep through passages like this one. Shock doesn't feel good, I know. But sometimes we have to allow ourselves to be shocked into reality. If we don't, then we will never get full understanding of what Jesus is talking about here. That this, is the, this was the problem with his audience. And so when it comes to the misunderstanding, Jesus says it's the one who does the will of my Father. It's not, it's not salvation by works. That's not what he's, what he's presenting here. It's salvation by grace. It's evidenced by wholesale change. These people apparently thought to themselves, well, I've done some pretty good stuff. To which Jesus counters in, in verse 22, on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? Did we not cast out demons in your name and do mighty works in your name? We have served you with great devotion. I want you to pay attention to the subtle but eternally important difference here between what Jesus is saying and between what these hypothetical people are saying. He's saying salvation is evidenced by those who do the will of my Father. These people are saying, look at all the stuff we did. Jesus points to what God does through us when we belong to him. These people point to a self-made spiritual resume. Take a look at all the books I wrote, all the sermons I preached, all the money I gave, all the stuff I did. And Jesus, Jesus has your spiritual resume. He has mine. He is just as impressed with it as he was with the resume of Judas Iscariot. And the gospel is not about my own white-knuckled self-effort to try to be something that I could never be in the sight of God. And there's a lot of people, Jesus says here, a lot of preachers, a lot of guys who do what I do for a living, a lot of theologians, a lot of good, solid people who are going to get to the end of their lives or to the end of eternity, and they're going to be shocked to find themselves outside the kingdom because they've lived their entire lives with this misunderstanding. Let me tell you what's especially dangerous about that. It's that you and I live in a culture, a Christian culture, that loves the image more than we love the reality. How things look versus how things are. Lord, look at all the books I sold. Look at the thousands of people I preached to. Look at all the things I uh, attracted to you. Look at all the miracles I performed. But none of it was based in the genuine message of Jesus. The, the German theologian Reinhold Niebuhr identified this false gospel. He said it, it, it's, it, it presents a God without wrath who brings men without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the administrations of a Christ with no cross. There's a lot of people falling for that. And this is why at the end of the age, Jesus is going to look at a lot of pastors, evangelists, faith healers, and good cultural Christians and call them what is prophesied that he will call them here. You're a worker of lawlessness. Because of a misunderstanding that has dangerously permeated the Western church, confusing the gifts of man with the fruit of the Spirit. Brothers and sisters, that's not the same thing. It's not. 
We See, we think if somebody can preach the doors off a barn, or if they can sell a lot of books, or if they can make you feel really good, or they can attract large crowds, that that makes them anointed. It doesn't. Now, don't, make no mistake, there are lots of men and women who write books and teach effectively and attract large crowds who are, in fact, anointed, and they are the genuine article. So those things in and of themselves don't mean that you are a false prophet, but they also aren't the thing that makes you true. You, you may not be as alert as I am to the, the plague of abuse scandals that has rocked the, the Western church over the last couple of years. Started within Roman Catholicism, all the Protestants said, well, it's because of Roman Catholic doctrine, and, all, and then all of a sudden, by divine providence, the, the, the roof gets peeled off of Protestantism and evangelicalism. Now we start to see all these people that so many of us, me included, have looked up to for years and years revealed to be sexually immoral, to be abusers, to be men and women who did not live up to the standard that we thought they were living up to. We're in the process right now of looking for a student ministry pastor. Uh, I'm excited about the prospect, but at the same time, I'm i got to tell you, I'm, I'm a little bit nervous, because, uh, and we're being incredibly careful with background checks and other things. And here's, here's the reason why. It's because a large number of these men that got in trouble and have found themselves exposed, it's not for something they did last week. It's for something they did 20 years ago when they were a, wait for it, youth pastor. And it got swept under the rug. It got ignored. They got shuffled from one church to the next. And it was hidden because somebody or a number of somebody's in that church thought charisma was more important than character. Somebody in that church thought the institution was more important than the victim. Somebody in that church confused the gifts of man with the fruit of the Spirit. And Jesus doesn't play with that stuff. You know, it's interesting as a pastor, I get this occasionally. The pastor, they don't, you know, somebody will come in tell me about somebody else. I have a, a good friend of mine who retired from ministry a few years ago. He used to have a plaque on his desk. It, it didn't say Pastor Gary Glanville. It just simply said, don't tell me what somebody else said. It's a pretty good thing for a pastor to have on his desk. But, but I'll hear about somebody and it'll shock me. And I'll be like, hey, you know, I've never seen that in them. Pastor, they don't act the same way when they're around you. See, I... Some people act as though you're going to stand in front of your pastor one day at the judgment. Instead of the Lord of heaven and earth, who sees everything? You ain't hiding nothing from him. You think he only sees you when I'm in the room? But this is how we do, isn't it? We live our double lives. We, we don't take our faith seriously. That misunderstanding is dangerous. And this is what Jesus says about this in another one of the Gospels. He says, there's nothing hidden that will not be revealed. Let that sink in for a minute. All that stuff you think nobody else knows, the top is going to get blown off one day. Just absolutely blown off. My friend uh, Dan Dorner, who's been consulting with this church and our staff for a couple of years now, puts it this way. It's who you are when nobody else is looking. That's who the entire world is going to see as soon as God decides it's time. That's what's going to happen. That's the difference between people who, who misunderstand 
the difference between a gift of man and the fruit of the Spirit. And that misunderstanding, if the shock value of Jesus' words don't wake you up, there will be eternal consequences to that. Look at verse 23. These, ought to fright, these words ought to frighten any of us. Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. I want you to see three things quickly here. The first is this. Jesus teaches this in this passage that confession is no substitute for conversion. What I say, what I confess with my mouth, if there's not a corresponding heart attitude that cries out to be to abide with God, then there's, there's something terribly, terribly wrong. Confession and conversion are not the same thing. You can call Jesus Lord all you want. You can confess how you know him. But if anyone is in Christ, Paul says, he is a new creation. Old things are passed away. All things have become new. I mean, you look at it this way. If I, if I walked in here late this morning, let's say I'd gotten here about 9.15 and everybody's freaking. They're like, where's Joel? And the elders finally see me out in the foyer and I just kind of waltz in. And let's say it's just because I slept late or I didn't care or whatever. And they're like, Pastor, we love you, but you know you have something to do. Right? Where have you been? And imagine I looked at those men and I said, well, here, here's, the, here's the thing, fellas. I was on my way, but I, I, something came out of the back of my truck and I had to pull over on the side of the road and get it in the rain and they can look and see that I'm dry. And once I got it, got it loaded back up, it was a really heavy thing. I, I put the tailgate up and I step out in the road to go get back into my truck. And when I turn around, this big dump truck is just coming right at me and it, it, just, it just hits me and it plows right over me. And it, I, I'm sorry I'm late, but I, I had to, I had to gather my composure so I could get back here for this. Now, any reasonable person is going to assume one of two things about me at that point. I am either lying or I have lost my ever-loving mind. And in either case, those men ain't going to let me within 100 yards of this pulpit. You get that? You know why? Because they know in the physical realm, what any of us should know in the spiritual realm. You don't get hit with something like that and just recover. And likewise, when you have an encounter with the living God whose very breath created everything you see and multiplied millions of other things that you don't see, when you encounter that God crucified, resurrected, coming again, you do not walk away. You do not go back to your sin. You do not leave his presence unchanged. There are going to be people who call him Lord, but they're not changed. And I will say to them, depart from me, workers of lawlessness. I never knew you. Because confession is no substitute for genuine conversion. Secondly, religion is no substitute for a genuine relationship. That's one of the things we see here. You know how much it means for you to say, I know Jesus, or for me to say, I know Jesus? Nothing. It means absolutely nothing. You know, we, we could get done here, and I could decide, you know what, I want to go see the president. And I could get in my car, and, and in about 90 minutes, I could be standing at the, right at that gate there, the north lawn of the White House, and I could be walking up to the guard shack and tell them, my name's Joel Rainey, I'm here to see, I'm here to see President Trump. And they're probably going to laugh aren't they? Because that's, this is how it works. You know, no matter who's in office, this is a busy man, a busy woman. They, they shouldn't, you know, they, they don't have time to fool with you today. Did you make an appointment two years ago? No. Well, then you, you're not getting in today. Busy schedule. 
What if I countered that with, but I know this man? Because I, I do. I, I've, I've seen him on television. I look at his Twitter feed. I do, you know, I do all this stuff. I, I know, even if I just made a claim that, you know what, I, I've met him personally. I shook the man's hand in a rope line once. Well, this man shakes thousands of hands on a weekly basis. What's the chances he's going to really remember me? What difference does it really make for me to scream at the top of my lungs, I know him, except that I might get put in jail if I keep doing it. But you know what really makes the difference? I mean, you know what, what's going to get me across that fence without getting shot? It's when the leader of the free world, no matter who he or she is, steps out onto the North Lawn, surrounded by that same Secret Service and Capitol Police, and points their finger at me and says, I know him. Now that makes a difference, doesn't it? That makes all the difference in the world. You can say you know Jesus, you can call Jesus Lord all you want. When you get to the end of the age, you may not even be able to speak to say such things. When you get to the end of the age, when I get to the end of the age, we will have nothing in and of ourselves that gets us into the kingdom. We've only got one hope, and that is that the Son of the living God, crucified for our sins and raised to guarantee us eternal life, looks at his Father and points at us and says, I know her. I know him. And that's the question you have to ask yourself. Is that true of you? Is that true of me? Or are you going to hear the other dreaded message? I never knew you. Religion is no substitute for relationship. And finally, service is no substitute for salvation. You can't work your way up to God. You can't do it. And for that matter, even if you could, once you got to the top of that ladder, do you know what the author of Hebrews says you'll find? If you get there of your own effort, a consuming fire. That's what you'll find. R.A. Torrey puts this way, a man is better off with no hope than with a false hope. And I would contend there are millions upon millions of people in the United States of America living under the false hope of a cultural Christianity that's going to send them into an eternity apart from Jesus. And I'm praying today that if there's any of those folks in front of me right now that you will be awakened from that spiritual slumber because if you don't, 10 billion years from this moment, you are still going to feel the consequences. We'll talk about hell in a couple of weeks. Man, I've had that question. Do you really believe? I've even had fellow theologians go, hey, pastor, do you, I can't believe, Joel, that you think there's no end to this. I mean, surely after 100 years, man's paid his debt. Surely after 10,000 years, a man has paid his debt. We'll talk about that more in a couple of weeks, but I will say this now, my dear friends. You cannot sin against an infinite being and merely suffer a finite consequence. That's why hell is forever. It doesn't end. I don't want to see anybody here, there. Breaks my heart to think that you might be. There's a lot of folks that are cultural Christians. You know, right after 9-11, churches all over America, we were, Amy and I were planting a church at the time. Churches filled to the brim with all kinds of people who have long since forgotten whatever it was they promised God in that Sunday right after the, the worst attack on American soil since the, the War of 1812. 
I've met a lot of people now in their 20s, 30s, even in their 40s that when they were teenagers, somebody took them to a camp and they went on top of a mountain and they started a fire and they gathered around that fire and they shed a lot of tears and they talked a lot about Jesus. And, but they've long since forgotten whatever commitment they made on that mountaintop. In fact, it didn't last too much longer after they got into the valley. I've met a lot of people as a pastor who got themselves into a lot of trouble. Can't tell you how many times I've gotten a phone call or an email from a husband who finally confesses to me, Pastor, I've been having an affair for like seven years and my wife found the text messages and I don't know what to do. It looks like it's going to be over. Pastor, I've been overspending and the credit card bills are just piling up and my husband opened one of them up and now the cover's been blown off and I, I don't know what to do. But the crisis passed and so did their devotion. Cultural Christianity. Good people. People who before what you're hearing me say would have said, yeah, yeah, I believe in God. I, I believe Jesus is Lord. People like the camp family that I described earlier. People that would make good neighbors. But people who are not right with God. Still separated by their sin from his love and from his mercy. One of my greatest fears is that some of those people are in front of me right now. Here's the good news. You don't have to be that person. See, as we've been praying for the one, I don't have any doubt just because of the law of mathematical probability that some of those ones have been sitting right in front of me for almost four years now. I've been your pastor, but you've not been my brother, my sister. You may not have realized it until just this moment. You have not belonged to Jesus. And God is calling you at this moment. Some of you are sitting right now, right next to a spouse who's been praying for you to come to Jesus. And you're just like, oh, that's right, my wife. She's been bringing me all this time, just praying that something would change. Yeah, but that is between you and the Lord. What are you going to do today? in order to ensure that you have eternal life. See, the scriptures do tell us that all of us are born dead in our trespasses and sins, cut off from the promises and the blessing of God, that we are separated from him, that hell awaits us apart from God doing something for us. But the greatest news that's ever been told in all of human history is that God did something. God didn't preach from the precipice of heaven. God didn't condemn. God put on human flesh. God lived a perfect life, exactly and precisely the kind of life that God requires of each and every one of us. Jesus then willingly laid down his life and he bore not just the pain of crucifixion, but the full wrath of God for every single person who would ever believe. And then he rose from the dead triumphant over death, hell, and the grave, guaranteeing to those who believe that because he lives, you will live also. That promise can be yours today. You need only to turn from your sin and give him everything. Put all of your faith, all of your trust in him. Are you the one that you're looking for? You need to come to Jesus today. Today. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for these beloved people. Thank you for the opportunity to speak your word. And Lord, I just pray that if there are people asleep at the wheel, Lord, would you wake them up today? Would you shock them 
into the reality of what's truly going on in their heart and their soul. Father, I pray the words of Ezekiel over every person here today who may be far from you and not even realize it, that you would take out of them a heart of stone and replace it with a heart of flesh and that you would put your fear in them so that they will not turn away. Father, may they come to know Jesus today and may they be forever changed and may they be empowered to change others. I ask these things in your powerful, powerful name. Amen. Hi, everybody. Pastor Joel here, and I am so glad you stopped by. I pray this podcast helps you in your walk with God. And if you're listening with questions about faith of any sort, God is not afraid of those questions, and neither are we. Join us any Sunday morning at 9 o'clock or 11 o'clock in the morning. If you're new to our area and looking for a church home, I hope we'll see you soon and have the opportunity to welcome you properly and personally through our doors. And if you live in the tri-state area, but you're already a part of one of the other phenomenal church families here, I pray this podcast has been a great addition to the primary teaching you already received from your local pastor and that you've been better equipped to serve your own church family. So let's all go make Jesus famous this week. Share his love every chance you get until we meet again. And God bless you.